Welcome to another national security podcast from us at the Errant Fox Law Firm. My name is Dan Renberg. I'm in the Government Relations Practice Group. And today I'm joined by David Hankey, who's in the International Trade Practice Group and helps us in the Government Relations Practice Group as well. Today's topic is the U.S. Innovation and Competition Act, which the Senate passed by a 68 to 32 margin. It was a bipartisan piece of legislation, and some people have referred to it as the largest industrial policy bill in decades. Today, Dave Hankey is going to help you understand a bit more about what's in the bill and why you and your industry should care. Dave, thanks for joining us today. I know you worked on the Hill. You were a senior Senate staffer. Why don't you just start us off by reminding us what your background is? Thanks, Dan. It's uh, good to be with you here today. I am a partner in the International Trade and Investment Group here at Aaron Fox, as you mentioned, and I'm also a partner in our National Security Group, which is one of our new industry groups, kind of a cross-functional effort focused on a variety of practice groups within the firm. And I did spend 12 years on Capitol Hill, mostly in the U.S. Senate, in a variety of national security policy jobs. Most recently, I was at the Senate Select Committee on Intelligence for about two years, left there at the beginning of 2019. One of the things I did on the Hill was work on foreign investment screening or CFIUS legislation, also worked on some secure 5G legislation. Both of those efforts became law. So happy to talk about the uh, U.S. Innovation and Competition Act here today. Thanks, Dave. And I think to save time for this podcast, we'll call it USICA. Uh, hopefully people can follow. What's the overall nature of this legislation? It seems like a bit of a Frankenstein piece of legislation. It started off with one thing, but then other disparate pieces were added. So maybe you could share with us a little bit about what's the overall nature of the bill. Indeed, this is a very bipartisan effort, which in its own right, I think, makes this somewhat unique in the present day. But one of the sort of common concerns across the U.S. Congress these days is that the national security challenge posed by China. And uh, you'll find Republicans and Democrats both talking about that. Of course, they focus on slightly different things, but they're both very concerned about it. And that's what really animated this legislation, not just from a national security standpoint, but also from sort of an economic, technological and military standpoint, too. So the legislation was built around an effort by Senator Chuck Schumer and Senator Todd Young of Indiana called the Endless Frontier Act, which really focuses on federal research and development funding. And from there, it's really been layered upon layer with a variety of different components, including both authorization and appropriations. We can talk about that a bit further, too. Because it's such a comprehensive bill, Dave, it seems like a lot of industries should be paying close attention as the bill now progresses in the legislative process. What are some of the industries that you think really should be paying close attention? And, you know, some of them might be even already consulting with you. Yeah, it's a great question, Dan. I think maybe I'll just talk a little bit about some of the sort of core funding provisions that are in the bill, because I think really... You know, you got to follow the money in terms of the actual impacts of this bill. And I mentioned the appropriations piece. So there's over $52 billion in emergency supplemental appropriations really centering on two industries or two, two types of specific technology efforts. One of those is semiconductors. A good chunk of that money is on incentives to entice additional domestic manufacturing of semiconductors. Of course, there's been a major shortage of semiconductors in the past year, in part due to the pandemic, other factors as well. And the Biden administration, many on the Hill have been very fired up about trying to address that problem. The other major piece of this is 5G, something called the Open Radio Access Network. You can think sort of next generation wireless technologies and a way to create a new type of approach, a new ecosystem of, of U.S. companies 
instead of just the limited number of sort of vendors who've been dominating this particular area for the past uh, decade or so. And so this is going to involve a variety of different companies, including semiconductor companies, software companies, companies that make things like antennas, radios, cloud computing companies. So that's all on the appropriations side. On the other side, we have a sort of the federal R&D piece. There are 10 specific technology focus areas that are laid out in this bill. And this might be more of interest to small companies and universities, but also medium-sized companies and large companies shouldn't dismiss the opportunities here. But just to name a few of these areas, it's things like artificial intelligence, machine learning, high-performance computing. Again, we have semiconductors. We have quantum computing, robotics, advanced manufacturing to include 3D printing. We've got uh, biotech, uh Genomics, we've got data storage and management, cybersecurity. It's really a cornucopia of sort of what you might call emerging technologies. Also composite materials and advanced materials, advanced battery technology, advanced nuclear, you name it. There's quite a bit in this pot, both in terms of the dollar figures and also in terms of the sort of breadth of the focus areas. On the authorization side, of course, the types of the amounts of money that they're going to throw at it are significant. Congress will need to appropriate money to actually fund these programs, but there's going to be a new technology directorate created within the National Science Foundation, which is pretty significant, $26 billion over six years for programs within those 10 specific buckets that I mentioned. In addition, a boost in funding for sort of the core science mission of the National Science Foundation. There's also going to be Significant funding for the Department of Energy, the National Laboratories, which is more government-driven than private sector-driven, but a good chunk of change there as well. And uh, one other thing I want to highlight is the Supply Chain Resiliency Program, which would be created within the Commerce Department. Of course, supply chain issues have been a major focus during the pandemic for a variety of reasons. So Congress is working closely with the Biden administration, which has just recently taken action on supply chain problems as well. But Congress wants to give them some tools to try to tackle those problems. One of those would be the Supply Chain Resiliency Program. Dave, it's always exciting when the Senate can pass legislation in a bipartisan way, because in this climate, it really does create some momentum for it. Often the House passes legislation on a party line vote and then it goes to die in the Senate. That's what we've seen over the last few years all too often. But now the Senate has taken the initiative. I know there's a House bill, but the administration, of course, needs to be contended with as well. So what are the Biden administration's views on the USICA as you know them? And then where's the House in the process? And how do you see this coming together? Because it seems to me that the time is ripe for stakeholders to be weighing in with members of Congress and the administration, that just because the Senate passed it doesn't mean this is a done deal. That's a great point, Dan. The House definitely gets its say here. First on the Biden administration, you know, you'll, you'll note that there's quite a bit of overlap between the U.S. ICA and some of the proposals that have come out of the Biden White House. Of course, they've had the Build Back Better proposal that's been in the works since even before he was elected. And uh, since he was elected, there's been a lot of talk about the need for major federal funding for semiconductors. So those are the types of things that are really animating, I think, their support. They were also pushing for some boost in funding for the National Science Foundation. So you'd say the, the Biden administration is, is very supportive of this bill. I think that there's so much in this bill that they're going to want to sit down and, and go through it and have a discussion with champions of the legislation on the Hill and refine some of the aspects of it, but their support is definitely strong. I think they want to see this get done this year, I think probably before Labor Day. On the House side, they see the writing on the wall. 
They know that this is a huge bipartisan effort coming out of the Senate with support from the White House. But of course, they they want to put their own stamp on it. It's unclear whether the same sort of bipartisan dynamic that existed in the Senate is going to be present on the House side. The Republicans in the House have been much more skeptical of, of this legislation. The version of the legislation on the House side that have emerged are somewhat different. And I think more objectionable to the Republicans. The dialogue, the sort of rhetoric on the House side has been more about U.S. competitiveness and less about China as a national security challenge. And I think that's part of the lack of enthusiasm uh, by the Republicans. Also, they don't really like the high dollar amounts. You know, the Senate bill is over $250 billion when you add it all together. Fiscal conservatives are not that excited about that on the House side. The major players over there are going to be the House Science Committee, the House Foreign Affairs Committee, uh, the Ways and Means Committee, I believe, is being consulted as well. We may find the same thing that happened on the Senate side, where the committees all contribute different pieces that are merged together in some sort of process before the, the bill arrives on the House floor. So we're going to stay tuned over the next month or two and watch this thing unfold. Whatever happens, I think it's safe to say this is probably going to be a landmark piece of legislation, very significant both for its bipartisan support, for its overall dollar figure, and for the message that it sends to the world about how concerned the U.S. government is about the China challenge. Well, Dave, you've really laid out a great roadmap for our listeners. You've helped identify the key elements of the USICA. You've provided a bit of a sense of what the pathway forward may be. <clears throat> Clearly, this is legislation that's on the move. It merits the attention of the sectors you've mentioned. And I know that you and our colleagues at Aaron Fox are going to be very excited when folks give a call and say that they could use some assistance in understanding the legislation or advocating on various elements of it. So with that, let me thank you. And again, this has been one of our law firm's national security podcasts. We look forward to putting out a few more of these as the situation warrants. With that, thank you so much for your time, Dave. Thanks, Dan. It was my pleasure.